Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to chapter 104 of the Corona Diaries. Wow. <laughs> Should I say? Well, well if, if, if you like, <laughs> if it clears your pipes. Um, on, the, on the subject of new things, even though you seem to have lost it momentarily, what's wrong? Sorry, I just had a Frankie goes to Hollywood moment internally, but it's, it's oh, fine. Oh, that's... Uh, is it? Is it... It's relaxed, isn't it? It is. Where he does that at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You just had an internal Frankie Goes to Hollywood <laughs> moment. <laughs> I did. That's a phrase that's open to all sorts of interpretation. Yeah, yes. Yes, it is. And you, you'll carry on. Carry on, Hankman Dwight hat on. <laughs> carry on, Hankman Dwight. <laughs> that's the one they never made. The one they never yes, made. It, just, it was it, there. It was, and they never did it. The fools, no. the fools. Have we ever talked about our favourite Carry On film? No, I don't think we have. Um, I think uh, I really love Don't Lose Your Head. That oh was yes, my favourite. I went to went to the pictures with John Leedale to see that, and just about wet myself because I was just at the right age for it. Right age for it. And, uh, yeah, I loved it. I loved Don't Lose Your Head. Right. I'll put a shout in for screaming, I think. Oh, well, yes. Oh, oh, sock it. Yes. Uh, what was she called? Fenella Fielding with her yes. lisp. Yeah, smouldering. Nobody smouldered like Fenella, did, did they? She just smouldered constantly. Or alliterated, to be fair. Vanilla Fielding's a good alliteration. It is. It is. She probably did a lot of fielding in her use. Oh, was she a cricketer? <laughs> On the boundary. <laughs> As we often have been. <laughs> oh, suck it. Yeah. Um, You've you've got changing the subject slightly, but if you want to if you want to put in the notes and tell us your favourite Carry On film, I'd be quite intrigued. Actually, I'm going to put a shout in for Screaming, and then as a left field choice, I'll go for Cowboy. Oh, Ooh. as a left field choice, I quite like Camping. You know, well, yes. Are we still on Carry On, Mister Fiddler? He's gone for a where is he? He's gone for a pee. All <laughs> all asses must be shown. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that joke has aged remarkably well, actually. <laughs> Mr. Fiddler. <laughs> anyway, we're off the subject of Carry On, and if you've no idea what Carry On films are, um, uh, uh, apologies for that. They are a very, it's a very British thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, but if you if you are aware, then let us know what your favourite is. Um, right. Um, you've got a new piano. I have. It's thinner than the other one. There's nowhere to put your gin. Uh, there's no speakers in it. But I thought I'd give it a go. Because it does... It does sound great. Mm. And it feels quite nice. It's a Roland RD2000. So you've um, jumped ship... Having been a yammy user for ages, I have a bit. Yeah, I've 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 gone I've I've gone over. Um, right. I don't know for how long. Um, I may return to Yamaha at some point. They were very nice to me in the shop. They've got a shop in Wardour Street, and uh, 
I can thoroughly recommend a visit to it because um, if you go downstairs, it's all full of a Yamaha electronic stuff. Now, what are you going to say next? And if you go upstairs, it's full of grand pianos. It is. Bursendorfers and Lord knows what. And mm. it's the most wonderful room. It's the old... Um, was it Boosie and Hawks or somebody? Was it, it was a, a pub. I think it was Chapels of Bond Street. No, it wasn't. It was. Wasn't it, it? it was. Who the hell was it? it? Anyway, it was a publisher's. And oh right, okay. If you go upstairs, um, there's this wonderful room that looks it almost beautiful. like a recital hall, like something you'd expect to see um, Mozart bashing away in. Um, and it's full of grand pianos. And, and Yamaha bought Bursendorfer, and so there's Bursendorfers up there as well as as well as top of the pops Yamaha grand pianos. So well worth a visit. And uh, they were very nice to me in there, uh, which was lovely because I I always think nobody knows a damn thing about me. And uh, every now and again I'll go somewhere and they go, oh, it's you. And I go, yes, I know. Uh, and and they were a bit like that. So they, they, they gave me the um they gave me this special treatment, carried me around on a cushion oh. and showed me all the stuff and let me have a tinkle on the on the Bursendorfers. And um so it felt churlish to go home and buy a Roland. <laughs> <laughs> but uh no, I, I, I'm by no means done with Yamaha. I dare say I'll be back. Uh, I just had a suspicion that the Roland RD2000 uh, sounded a bit better than the, um, than the Yammies. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll buy one of these and see how I get on. And the people at Roland were very nice as well. Um, so they were lovely. And, uh, and here it is. Well, um, I've just done a, a quick bit of Googling, um, and it was Chapels. Oh. Uh, chapels, and, but they were originally a uh, publishers. Yeah. Um, and they were bought by Yamaha back in 1980, but they continued to run the business as Chapels, and then it changed to Yamaha Music London. I'm so uh, I'm sorry for doubting you. No, no, it's and... it's it's the only reason is I've been in the shop when it was Chapels of Bond Street, right? Um, and um, but it's an inc- it is an incredible, incredible store, and that room is fantastic, and they do do recitals and have always done recitals up there. Oh, it's a lovely, lovely um, room, and it is a fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So we'll big up Yamaha, mm. even though you've just bought a Roland, and Roland a Fab Two as well, obviously. <clears throat> they um, are. But uh, oh, cool! Is that is that for on stage as well? Then I haven't made my mind up. I'm I'm I've not got round to reading the manual yet. Of course, uh, I've been faffing about with it uh, when I've been in the country, which hasn't been much. Because uh, since I bought it, I've not really had a lot of chance to faff with it. Um, but uh, if I if I faff with it and get happy with it, then then I might take it out on the road. And I might not. Um, the thing about live shows is you you have to really feel comfortable, and so introducing a new thing into the equation is always risky because if it, you know there's always something you haven't thought of, and if you end up on a stage and you're just not quite comfortable, it can bugger your whole evening up. So I might still take the Ami, the P250 out um, and leave this here un- until I'm I'm really settled with it. We shall see. Or I might so say many... I could take both and then set them, set them up and A-B them and use whichever one feels best in, in the room on the day. Right. So how many Yamahas did you have? What, P250s? Yeah. Well, I had about four or five in the end um, in various states of repair. In fact, I met up with Niall in the, uh, at the Racket Club one day earlier this year to, and we, we took them all out because some of them had dodgy MIDI boards that didn't work properly. Some of them had dodgy motherboards. There was one I, there was one I stood on top of in, um, 
in New York after I'd had the uh, steroid shot in my ass, got a bit carried away um, and out of control. Stood on top of it and, and it f <laughs> sort of trashed it, really. Um, so that had serious problems. Um, so we got them all out and we, we made... We made two good ones out of the four or five that were available. Um, so I have at least two fully functioning P250s of my own. Um, no, I don't. I've got three. No, I've got three fully functioning ones and uh, a couple of slightly dead ones for, for, for spares. And you said for spares. Does that mean that y you fix them? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm capable of that sort of thing because I, I used to be electrical when I was young, but I, I try not to publicise that far and wide in case... People he... start sending you kettles. <laughs> <laughs> Can you have a look at me toaster? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, no, I was thinking more of members of the band asking me oh, to, right. asking me oh, to do things. I was thinking of getting around the village. Oh People no! Bringing you old VHSs and oh, I'm not doing anything for this lot. They're all loaded. They can hire people in. I'm buggered if I'm getting involved in their domestic appliances. Well, you could have, you could have, you know, back in the day when John Arneson sat you all down and said you might have to think about another job. You could have a little van. No, I could you have could had do a small van. electrical repairs. Yeah. No, I could have done. I could have done also. In fact, back then I was, you know. Oh, it's quite attractive. I could have, I could have sold yeah. my body. This has started to sound. <laughs> carry on, small appliance repairing. <laughs> oh yeah, I could have been the, I could have been that cheeky repairman that comes yeah, in to yeah. fix yeah. the washer and then ends up elsewhere. You and Chris Neal in your own confessions, <laughs> confessions buddy movie. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's a marriage made in heaven. Actually, it is, actually. Yeah, I could have seen that. That could have been a real franchise, that, <laughs> the two of you. Chris and H, we fix anything. Well, it was, it was only when, when I was thinking about it that I actually I could see Ronald Hogarth, repairer of small electrical appliances, written on the side of a van. It probably was at some point, you know, yeah. and uh, that could have been my destiny. If, although it wouldn't have been Ronald, to be fair, because I, I never was Ronald. Only, you know, uh, only on the paperwork was I ever Ronald. I just saw it on the side of a van. That's right. the thing. It seemed to work for the side of a van. Right. Ronnie's repairs. Ronnie's repairs. Yeah. Uh. Ronnie's repairs. It's all alliteration this morning. <laughs> oh, you can't go wrong with a bit of that. You can't. And anyway, anyway, on to, on to subject matter proper. Mm. Um, we've done quite well there. There's about 12 minutes of us actually getting of, to the subject. Of utter of nonsense. Yes. That's, yes. A, that's about us. Subject matter proper. Yes, subject matter proper. Though I am very impressed with um, the new piano, and I'm, right. I'm now waiting for the first time we see it on stage. Is there any... There's no initials of a dictator... Or dubious world leader in, <laughs> Leland in, in, in Roland, is there? I don't know. I could probably, you know, get the gaffer tape out and turn it into something offensive. Um, <laughs> leave that with me. Okay. Well, we've, <laughs> we've already been very offensive on the Odds and Sods cast. Well, I um, could just change it to Ola, which would be quite, you know, cheerful. That would be quite nice. Yeah. Quite chipper. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think you should do that. Or Ron. You should change it to Ron with a bit of, you know... Anyway, carry on. With a big pause in the middle. Yeah. Raw. Mm. <laughs> raw. Mm. Quite like raw. Mm. Anyway, subject matter proper. We've got to somewhere else, haven't we? Yes, we've got to somewhere else. The the blue one with the with the with the telescope on it. Mm. Um, in our album chat, because we I think it was must have been Dave we were chatting to last when we were chatting about marbles. Yeah. Um, yep, 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 so yep. we'll start having a little bit of natter because we've, if we're trying to get to the end of the second volume of Diaries on the podcast, we're actually running out of time to talk about all the other albums. Oh, blimey. Quick. Yeah. <laughs> Quick. Quick, talk about them. Quick. <laughs> so somewhere else, first album mm. with Mike 
in in with production duties. Right. Yes. Yes, that was it, wasn't it? And I and I guess um, he was to some extent. I mean, that, I think that's been a learning curve for him as well. Um, I think he gradually, since then, he's learnt. Um, he's def he's definitely developed in a lot of ways. He's learnt to say no for a kickoff to us, you know, and boss us about a bit more than he did perhaps then you know he just said well let's let's write some songs and just about everything we wrote we recorded and that became the album whereas these days it's it is much much pickier you know mm. it, 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 as i've said before when we came to write an hour before it's dark he he kind of said, "Well, before we before we start, I'm telling you one thing: nothing's going on this album unless it could sit alongside anything on fear and stand up." And you know, and I remember thinking, "Oh, Jesus Christ, that's not just songs. Then that's that's quite that's a high bar, you know." Yeah. Um, so he's 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 much less compromising, I think, than he was back then. Um, which is reflected perhaps in the in the in the quality of the songs that that has appeared in the last few albums. Um, somewhere else actually took a bit of a slagging from certain quarters, and yet there are some people who you know really stick up for it and say it's one of their favourite records. So I guess it just boils down to what you want out of us. Some people want a certain thing out of us and don't want a certain other thing. Um, and looking at this track list, uh, looking at the other half, see it like a baby. Thank you, everyone. Most was somewhere else. Voice of the past, no such thing. The wound, last century. Oh, that's interesting. On Apple Music, it says the last century of man, which is not the title. It's the last century for man. So I guess I guess I I'm splitting hairs, but that that was what I called it. So that's been misquoted, and then faith on the end. And so so looking at that list, they're very very different songs, aren't they? They're very different musically uh, mm. in terms of perhaps the genre you would if you if you're one of these people that absolutely has to force everything oh. you hear into a genre then somewhere else really is all over the place you know the other half is a kind of i don't know what would you call that sort of up tempos up tempo -y, psychedelic then becomes jazz um see it like a baby is much much lighter thank you whoever you are is 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 like a sort of rock ballad most toys is is you know like something from the plastic ono band or something somewhere else is probably the nearest thing to what you might expect from marillion somehow um a voice from the past is different again that's that's a very different kind of i don't know what genre you'd put that in no such thing um was that was almost a pastiche of um what's that band Ozzy Osbourne's in <laughs> what are they called well the original one Black Sabbath yeah it's a it's a Black Sabbath b-side pastiche there's a b-side on one of the Black Sabbath um singles I can't remember which one and we we modeled no such thing on that Mm. Um, and I could tell you which one it is, but I can't remember. But I'm sure one of the purples will be onto it. Um, the wound is much more kind of out there in U2 land for a little while, and then it kind of wanders off into another place. And the last century for man is 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 a sort of blues that becomes orchestral. And then faith is just a little acoustic guitar and voice thing. People say it reminds them of, of Blackbird. 
uh, yeah. from the White Album, because some of those moves in the acoustic guitar, the, 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 uh, that's Pete actually playing the acoustic, and Pete wrote that part, and I sang those words on it. So that was a bit of a Travis Hogarth com composition, Faith, which then, you know, the band got involved in and fleshed out a little bit, but it, it was essentially there. So it's all over the place, musically. Faith, now, I'm right in saying Faith is a hangover from Marbles, isn't it? Possibly, yeah. I, I can't remember anymore when yeah, these I think Faith things is a, a Marbles hangover. Life. Was it? Was yeah. it something we already had that we yeah. that we decided to use? Yeah. I, I, well, I wouldn't argue with you. If you know yeah. that, then that'll be true. Especially after the all the rest that of was... it was fairly. The rest of it was fairly unique to somewhere else, wasn't it? Because the only other thing um, that we, um, I think, I think there's a couple of things on happiness that might have also go back to um, marbles, but. I think everything else on somewhere else was from those those sessions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was just after Letter and I had got together. Um, you know, my marriage went down in between Marbles and, and somewhere else. And then um, Lynetta and I got together and I wrote the other half for her. Um, and about... Um, what was the other song that was about her as well? Um, Woke Up, which which ha which was on uh, Happiness is the Road, wasn't it? But mm. the other half and Woke Up were both about Lynetta. Um, so it was about me starting again, I suppose, a little a little bit and becoming another person, becoming a better person. So that that was that was a, a sort of song about rebirth, really, um, and metaphysics. I'd, I'd still got a lot going on. I was still still reading, um, you know. I was reading the Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle, and all of that, and and I was on the on the kind of higher consciousness, self awareness sort of place. So. There was the, there's the met, there's the metaphysics in the in the other half as well, uh, that mm. feeling of I don't know where air full of feathers even came from. Um, these things sometimes just explode in my head, and I, and I don't know, I don't, neither do I know where they've come from, nor do I truly know what they mean. I just know that they that they're right and they belong there. <laughs> So to start an album with the lyric "air full of feathers," <laughs> which implies a pillow fight, really, doesn't it? And there's nothing that, wrong with a pillow fight. No, but that's not really what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was more about air full of signs and strange magic. Yeah, it was all metaphysics. It was W. B. Yeats and Mad Mike. Um, so, so that's where I was. Um, Would it be fair to say there's there's the beginnings of some of the themes you end up talking about on fear and maybe an hour, hour before it's dark as well? Some of those things kind of start here. There's a, there's a bit of a, um, you know, um, there's certainly some talk about wealth on there. And, I mean, obviously, things like most toys, there's, there's, there's talk of... Um, inequalities world inequalities in there is it were you starting to to get into that place where you were wanting to talk about the issues in the world around you particularly in in terms of inequality particularly in terms of politics and those kind of things yeah well i think two things kicked that off there was my there was my meeting with the magic doctor in utrecht um which of course i catalog in the song happiness is the road but uh, I did meet this man from Utrecht, Netherlands, who was a doctor of the body and the soul, a guy called Heisberg Oyen. Um, and although I didn't spend a lot of time around him, he kind of became a, a guru for me a little bit. And just about every word that came out of his mouth shook me and, and, and led to songs. 
Um, and that happened. And then we used to have this PR guy called Lord B, um, whose real name is Paul Bultitude, and he used to be the drummer with Mary Wilson. And he was on top of the pops, drumming with Mary Wilson. But then, um, you know, time passed and he was no longer the drummer with Mary Wilson and, and he, he started to make a living as an independent promotions man and he used to babysit us around Europe. You know, he was the one who used to hold the sign up with the rabbit on if I was talking too much uh, behind the journalist. You know, this, this, this rabbit would appear and go down again. It was his way of saying, shut up and get, and get on to the next question. And he was the one who was with me when I was sick in um, Berlusconi's garden. Um, anyway, him, he, um, he phoned me up one day and said, um, there's this thing going on in London for uh, this new, it's like a launch, launch event for this new movement called Make Poverty History. And it's something that uh, Bob Geldof and, um, oh, God, what's his face, who wrote Four Weddings and a Funeral and... Richard Curtis. Richard Curtis, yeah. I just think of him as as, he, as a man in a jumper. <laughs> but but I, I had a chat with Richard Curtis. He was very nice. And his wife is... Uh, I don't know if she's still his wife. I mean, I have no reason to doubt that she would be. Uh, but he's married or was married to Emma Freud. And I swapped a lot of emails with Emma Freud as well around about that time. She's extremely nice. Um, she certainly put up with me banging on at her, which was which was very very sweet of her considering. And um, so I went to this launch event for Make Poverty History, and Bob Geldof was there, and and Richard Curtis was there, and a few other people were there, and I ended up sharing a a cab back out to Buckinghamshire with Robin Gibb from the Bee Gees. Uh, and Robin and I chatted all the way back in this car. Um, and that was fascinating because, of course, he knew everybody. He knew, he knew he'd known the Beatles really well. and I mean, basically, you name them, um, the, the Bee Gees knew them. And, it, uh, you know, I'd worked with half of them. So that was a fascinating to talk to Robin for a, an hour on the way back. But the thing itself, the, uh, the launch event itself, really lit a bit of a fire inside me about trying to do something more than just re write some songs um, and, try and, and, and try and do more meaningful things and try and, try and actually do something worthwhile with my time uh, and spread a good message. Um, and I think A Voice from the Past was was most definitely a direct consequence of of that day, of, of the fire that was lit inside me uh, by Make Poverty History. Um, and, of course, it starts with... It starts with the death of John Lennon. Um... And everything that John was banging on back then and before that idiot shot him. Um, and Yoko, to be fair, everything that John and Yoko were banging on about. Um, and the fact that, in a way, they were so far ahead of, of the curve uh, of, of enlightenment and awareness, consciousness in the world for... for um, how people were prejudiced against, how women were prejudiced against in the world and, and how the how the poor are kept poor and all of those things. So so that lit a bit of a fire inside me and I, I guess that's been on my radar ever since. And the last century for man was, you know, it was a new millennium and I started to think about... What's going to happen in the next 100 years, you know, in between the year 2000 and the year 2100? And I thought, well, looking at the way things are going, we'll be lucky to make it through this century. Um, 
uh, and not nothing much. She just led me to suspect no. otherwise. <laughs> we, no. we're, we're a fifth of the way in, and uh, it ain't looking a great deal rosier. Uh, so, given another, given another what seventy five, nearly eighty years from now, you know, you you got to wonder where it's going. Um, and so, a title like the Last Century for Man seems dramatic to the point of of being almost silly when you really think about it it might not be as daft as it sounds um so that's where that came on multiple levels as well because because whether it's our ability to to bring around our own downfall directly through mm. conflict and through those kind of things, or whether it's our ability to bring around our own downfall through what we're doing to the planet around us, it's it's not a it's not a single, you know. I mean, that's before you start talking about a stray asteroid. Um, it's 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 not you know we're we're having a good crack at doing it on multiple levels, aren't we? Yeah, well, that's really what the song says. You know, it just says. <laughs> Carry on like we are. We'd, we, you know, we're here. We are at the beginning of a new, a new um, millennium. Uh, um, do, you, do you reckon we'll even get through the first century of it, as a as a species? I don't think we're going to get through the first century of it unchanged. You know, not. You know, I think we're going to be massively changed, almost certainly massively reduced during this century um, by something massively reduced because we, we, the, the planet can't sustain us and, and it won't. It's bigger than us and we mustn't forget that. Carry On and We're Fucked doesn't seem like one of the films that should have been in the, in the <laughs> sequence. But <laughs> I'd have liked to see Sid, Sid James <laughs> and Babs pull that one off. <laughs> If you'll pardon Sitting the expression. Pull it off. <laughs> that sounds far more like it. <laughs> Carry um, on and we'll, we're fucked. We'll, <laughs> there's the title of this this episode. We never struggle for titles, do we? <laughs> no. We ought to go for a bit of a bit of diary, but I'd like to explore um, maybe in the next couple of episodes, whatever we do. I'd like to explore the writing process because it does feel. Like you say, that it was a, a a process then that with Mike that had an evolution. Yeah, because the songs certainly, the songs certainly seem to be slightly different format to say where we are now. They seem a, a lot of them, you know, seem a little bit more orthodox in in terms of format and 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 song length as well, probably. Because um, the you know there's nothing that sprawls in quite the same way on somewhere else as you know as as, as say fear or what have you. Um, so I'd like to I'd like to sort of come back to that and talk about that evolution with Mike as well. Um, but Diary's going to be a bit weird this week because you you're going to do a page and a half, which is two thousand and two. Yeah, I was I was looking at that earlier. Yeah. <laughs> so so two thousand two, the end. Yeah, it was a bit like that. <clears throat> and and two thousand and two looks positively dense compared with two thousand and three, <laughs> which doesn't exist at all. <laughs> I wonder where I'd gone. So, <laughs> so popped out. <laughs> popped out. Um, went to Manchester twice. The end. To, the end. And 2003 <laughs> clearly didn't go to Manchester. <laughs> so, so we'll probably have to start with a bit of 2004 as well. Yeah. Because uh, otherwise it will be the world's shortest, um, diary, shortest diary reading. But what's interesting is that 2004 means that the piece in 2004 will actually also mention marbles. Right. So we st we are actually starting to get to the point where we are, we are what we took like today what we're talking about is actually not a million miles off where we are in real time. Hmm. Um, hmm. I mean, yeah, it's still five years, but it's hmm. closer than we've been for a large large amount of it. Well, we're going to so overtake we'll, ourselves at some point. Yes. So we'll go and do we'll go and do um, the the. The, literally the page that is 2002, and then we'll have a section of um, 2004. Um, and I don't know where you are because it actually doesn't say. 
where you're going. So you must be in between places. Hmm. Hmm. I was in between places. No, I think it was that was a hell of a day. I think we we uh, we start the day in Holland, I think, doing Top of the Pops and end the day in Aylesbury Civic, rehearsing for the first Marvels show. Um, And that was all in 24 hours. And then after all of that, Adrian Trudinic, my mate, gave me a lift to King's Sutton Station to pick up my car, which was in the car park, having been left there so I could get on the train to go to the airport to go to Holland. So, you know, that had been one hell of a day. Um, no wonder I can't remember anything when, when I've had 24-hour periods like that. Um, you do have the odd day like that, don't you? Yeah, yeah, where you kind of do, you know, what was that day where we got up and went, went to Southampton or something and, and did, did, did no one can in, a, in TV South Studios, met Gabby Rosslyn. Uh, then got on a plane and went to Paris and played the played the Zenith. <laughs> yeah, that's a day. That was all in one. That was, that was all in about eighteen hours. So uh, yeah, we, uh, we occasionally have those. It's, they're probably completely normal for uh, certain pop star and rock stars. You know, they, they probably have a couple of countries in in, in any any twenty four hour period. Incredible. Right, well, we'll get on. Manchester twice. Manchester twice and then a complicated day after that of of TV and rehearsal. Here it comes. (laughs) 2002. Thursday, 28th of November. Studio, Manchester. Arrived at the studio at 9pm with a jeep full of clothes. No sign of a bus, but the doors were open and there were flight cases and equipment of various shapes and sizes strewn about outside the open workshop door. Said hello to Eric, Colin and Rod and wandered inside to the lounge where monitor man Phil Brown was watching Liverpool FC on the telly. Exchanged greetings and chatted for a while before going upstairs in search of a few more items of stage wear. The bus was running late, so I decided to go to the pub, have a pint and read the newspapers. Interesting reading about MI5 documents declassified today. Oswald Mosley married his wife, Diane, in Goebbels' front room. Now there's something I didn't know. Aren't the British aristocracy a bundle of laughs? Returned to the racket club at 10.45, where the bus was now parked. Transferred all my bits and bobs and had a beer whilst not really watching the remake of Ocean's Eleven on the video in the upper back lounge. Found a copy of Vogue and a copy of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice in the cupboard above my bunk. Must have been girls on the bus before us then. I can't really see most rock and roll bands getting off on Mr Darcy coming out of a pond with his shirt all wet. Still, you never know with artists. I went through a phase of reading Vogue and the classics myself. Chaz and Roy, Cry No More, are with us for this short Christmas tour and it was good to see them again. Roy confessed to never having been on a tour bus before. I bet he doesn't sleep. Action movies tend to bore the pants off me, so I didn't hang around for very long before turning in. Didn't sleep terribly well. It always takes a couple of nights to get into the swing of bus life. We're only travelling to Manchester. There's something wrong with the gearbox of the bus and there's a grinding, juddering sound whenever the driver changes gear. Not conducive to a good night's sleep. Friday, 29th of November, Manchester Academy. Woke up for the 105th time outside Manchester Academy. I think I felt the bus park up before I was properly asleep. Forgot to bring a pillow. Ah, I'll buy yet another one tomorrow. That's three in two months. Soon you won't be able to get into our house for pillows. 
Outside, it wasn't raining, unusual for Manchester, and I could see the crew stamping around, waiting for the venue to open the doors and let us in. Normally, you'd expect to be inside a venue by 9.30am, and it was long past 10. In the end, no one showed up till 11. Great. I wandered round the corner and found a cafe where I had a couple of coffees and chatted to Rothers, who was already ensconced with his nose behind a magazine. Steve devours technology mags with a veracity way beyond obsession. I often take the mickey. 2004. Monday, 19th of April, or thereabouts. Went to bed and watched Al Pacino, who had made a film about Shakespeare and Richard III. You can't help liking him. Pacino, that is. Woke up several times in the night, too hot, too cold, and wondering what time it is, until I decided to get up and shower at 8.30. I hadn't had a chance to shower yesterday. I had a train to catch, and I'd left it all too late. So it felt good to be under the water and feel wholesome again before the rigours of the day. We're supposed to be in Aylesbury in production rehearsals for the Marbles tour, but we're in Hilversum, Holland, doing Top of the Pops. Great things are happening here at the moment. We're number eight in the chart. Marillion's biggest hit single ever here. I was on the front page of The Telegraph yesterday, and Radio 2 here have just added our single, You're Gone, to the playlist. There's a good chance that the single will carry on up the Dutch chart and be even higher next week. I had breakfast with Steve and Ian. Steve's on the Atkins diet and is complaining that he is now living almost entirely on eggs. I have therefore christened him Cool Hand Luke. We left the hotel at 9.30 in two separate cars and got halfway to the TV station before we realised we'd left Steve at the hotel. Each car assumed the other had him. We decided to carry on and then send a car back for him later. When we arrived at the TV station, it became apparent that most of the hired equipment had failed to turn up. No drum kit, no bass guitar, and no amplifiers. Oh well. We were shown downstairs to a dressing room and then on to makeup, where Monique from Eindhoven used an airbrush on my face. Well, that's a first. I've heard of having your imperfections airbrushed out, but this was literal. The sensation of cold air and a fine liquid spray was really pleasant and must be particularly so on a hot day. I also persuaded Monique to lend me some black grease paint to put on my boots, which were in need of a polish after scuffing them round London yesterday. We hung around waiting for equipment to come together before we could sound check. I'm singing a live vocal while the band mimed to a playback of the single. Through the dressing room wall I could hear the sounds of an orchestra rehearsing somewhere, so I set off in the general direction of the music to see if I could sit in and watch them play. Up a few flights of stairs and along a few of the corridors in this maze of a place, after a few wrong turns I found the source of the music and opened a door into a large studio where, sure enough, an orchestra was playing. They finished playing just after I sneaked in and so I clapped. Everyone stared and the reaction was mixed. Some of the players smiled, while some gazed at me in a nonplussed fashion. The conductor stared for a moment over his glasses before turning back to his sheet music in order to ready himself for the next piece. Everyone was now practising different things at once and there was a quiet anarchy of strings, woodwind and muted brass as the conductor shuffled his manuscripts. After a few minutes he tapped his baton and all fell quiet apart from a clarinet player who was duly admonished in Dutch by the lead violinist. Discipline has to be tight when there's 40 or more people involved. I shudder to imagine how anyone could ever make sense of the process if they were all as wayward as the five of us. I have often likened our creative process to five five-year-olds building a nuclear reactor. The orchestra once again began to play the most exquisite introduction to another piece of music. Being unaware of all but the most popular classical works, I have no idea what they were playing, except that it was beautiful, but at the same time not terribly memorable. I didn't hear a melody that I could carry away in my memory. 
I listened till the end and then decided against risking anyone's wrath by clapping again. I slipped out and back to our dressing room where it was soon time to go down to the TV studio to sound check. We were shown the way to Studio 4, which was a huge space with two different top-of-the-pop stages in it and a massive big TV light hanging up in the high, dark ceiling. We were being recorded alone as they had moved the recording time from evening to morning in order to fit us in today, so there were no other artists around. Soundcheck was uncomplicated. Soundman René introduced himself and gave me a good balance between the backing track and my voice. I'm singing okay despite the hour of the day. I'm not usually at my best before mid-afternoon. We returned to the dressing room for a little more hanging around, which I used up by listening to the backing track of You're Gone. It's been edited for TV, so I was double-checking I knew the arrangement, so I sang in the right places. When we were asked to return to the stage for camera check, I was just commenting to the band that it was a shame there was no audience in the studio when about 25 of our Dutch fans snaked into the studio and were herded to the back of the room beyond the cameras. I waved at them from a distance before studio floor manager Jean-Marc told us that they were happy to record the song now. They made one run-through and then they took one take and that was that. By now it was 12.40 and time was getting tight for our return flight to England, so we wasted no time in getting our bags together and leaving the building. Said hello to the fans on the way out and then climbed aboard the minibus where driver Patrick was waiting to take us back to Schiphol Airport. Back at Schiphol, we queued to check in at the EasyJet counter the bands paying for the flights, as I pondered once again how many times I've been in this place in the grip of terrible hangovers. It made a nice change to be here feeling healthy. The check-in girl must have been having one of those days, as she insisted on weighing our hand luggage and then refused to let me or Pete carry on our bags. We reluctantly checked them in after removing our laptops. You wouldn't want baggage handlers anywhere near those. We went through security and then straight down to gate D04. Schiphol is huge and I've learnt to go to the gate in plenty of time for the flight as it can often take up to 20 minutes to walk there. Once at the gate there was time to kill so I went to a nearby bar with Pete for a sandwich and a cup of tea. Ian eventually appeared and told us that the gate had now been changed to gate 20 went to gate 20 to discover that it doesn't exist. After more wandering around, we were told that the gate was D04 after all. Returned to D04 to be told it was gate 22. Ah, the joys of flying. Give me a tour bus any day. Having finally established that we were at the right gate, I began to work on today's diary until the flight was boarding. Slept most of the flight. Well, not exactly slept. Nodded around like a zombie in the upright position while the plane buffeted around in turbulence caused by some pretty thick rain clouds. Back in lovely Luton Airport, we walked across the tarmac in the rain and into the terminal to pick up bags. Ian offered to give me a lift to Aylesbury so we made our way to the car park and eventually took our place in a traffic jam on the A41. Ian wanted to drop in at his house in Tring on the way to Aylesbury as he was concerned about reports of water coming through the kitchen ceiling. When we got there, all looked fine. No flooding and the kitchen ceiling hadn't fallen in. I felt pretty tired by now so I persuaded him to make me a quick coffee before we set off again for Aylesbury. We arrived behind Aylesbury Civic around 5pm and we bumped straight into our old chum and truck driver for the tour, Simon Lake. I gave him a cuddle and made my way into the building. I'd had the bright idea of opening today's production rehearsals to the Front Row Club, our ultra-fan club for the really hardcore fans. So there were already a number of people hanging around and generally milling around in the building. I found my way to a dressing room and then onto the stage. We're using in-ear monitors for the first time ever today. 
These are molded devices which are placed inside the ear canal. They contain small diaphragms which project the sound directly to the eardrum, much like Walkman earphones, only better, and of course, much dearer. The user wears a radio receiver belt pack, which receives the signal from the monitor desk, so a mix of the entire band can be fed into the in-ears. Using this system for the first time was going to take some perseverance and care, so I worked with Phil Brown, our monitor engineer, to try and set up a mix that I could work with. Everything gradually came together, and the band and I slowly worked our way through the new set of songs from Marbles. This was to take the rest of the evening, until around 10.30, when we moved on to the older songs. There was an 11 o'clock sound curfew, so we had to stop at 11, which was just as well, really. It had been a long day. I was given a lift home by Adrian Tradinic, who had been hanging out at the gig and was going to stay over at our house. He took me to King Sutton Station so I could pick up my car, which had been left there yesterday when I took the train to London for my interviews at Broadcasting House and then the long journey to Holland. And we're back. And, and quite, as it turned out, quite a lengthy diary reading, um, simply because obviously we had to get 2000 and 2002 out of the way. Mm. Uh, and then, and then, your, then your, huge, your huge day in, uh, in, in April in 2004. I'm not going to talk too much about the diary. I could, we could have a long conversation about the sheer scale and size of Schiphol Airport. In fact, here's a question. Random guess, how many times have you been through Schiphol Airport? I don't know. I mean, just off, few, off the it? top of my head, 25, maybe 30 right. over the years. I mean, if you count coming out and going in as two, then probably nearer 60. Right. Uh, but, but you know, actually physically either getting off or getting on a plane there, yeah, a great many times. Um, during the earlier days I was in the band, Whenever we, as I've said in the diary piece, and, and I always say it whenever I'm in Schiphol, no matter who I'm with, uh, all of these dreadful hangovers flash back to me uh, whenever I'm in the check-in area. You know, I remember all the times I've been there feeling like I'm going to die um, because we always used to end up, you know, having a seriously good time in Holland somewhere. Um Usually on the on, on either because we'd gone there to do interviews and promotion and been plied with a lot of drink, or because we'd been on tour there and it had been the last night of the tour and we'd had a lot of drink. But whenever whenever we we were in Schiphol, I always felt like hell in a bag. Yeah. And um, so whenever I'm there now, I get sort of flashbacks of terrible hangovers as as I'm checking in. Yeah, yeah. I've I've. It's one of the airports I've been a little unwell in. Yeah, I in should imagine everybody can say yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've, I've had some good nights in Amsterdam and I've mm. had some fantastic... I've, I've felt very lousy in um, Geneva as well, having been to the Montreux Jazz Festival a few times and had a, some very good nights there and then crawled through that airport on the yeah. way home. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well. There is nothing worse than an airport when you're hungover. Oh, I had a dreadful one in uh, Cologne Airport once. That was an absolute howler. That was when I met the drummer from Prefab Sprout, Neil Conti. And I'd met him before and he came over and went, oh, hello, Steve, hey, how's it going? I said, I can't talk to you, Neil. I can't talk, man. I just cannot talk. And I was just sort of laid on the floor. <laughs> I had, I had, we had a really good night out in Barcelona on a work trip, and I went went with a guy who became a good friend, and he um, he couldn't find his room key uh, when he got back to his room, and we were we were in a bad way, um, and he just slept on the floor outside, and he slept against this square skirting board, and he had this this perfect shape of this skirting board in his face for the entire day. I can the next day. I can completely relate to that. The times I've thought that's fucking it i'm gonna sleep here here 
outside of this this door. I can't. I, there's no way I'm going back to reception for another key. No. I'm, I'm incapable. I'm staying here. And I've actually laid down in corridors and had, you know, members of the staff of the hotel gently kicking me on the shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, I think he did about four hours on the floor. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Input. Good effort. And the next morning, virtually set fire to the place because he put some t- some bread in the toaster and had a little sleep while he was waiting for it. <laughs> and the restaurant virtually went up. It was a good day. It yeah, good well, day. no wonder he became a friend. Yes, yes. He's the kind yeah. of person you want. You want I mean, to be chums with. If there's an emergency, he's not the, the best, but it's good for a night out. Yeah. Um, so obviously we'll we'll get back onto somewhere else um, uh, next time. But before we go, I just happen to have somewhere else up on Spotify, hmm. and so as a little pop quiz, right? Hmm. Can you can you hazard a guess at the track on somewhere else that's got the most number of plays according to Spotify, and the track on somewhere else that's got the least? Okay, let me um, just remind myself what's on it. Um, most plays, least plays. Most uh, plays, least plays. All right, let's have a stab at, thank you, whoever you are, for most plays. Okay. We, we, we did release it as a single. Least plays. No such thing. Okay. What's the truth, Ant? Uh, neither of those. Uh, somewhere else has the most plays. Of course it does. What was I thinking? Yeah. Um, and most toys has the least plays. Ah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, somewhere else, uh, by quite a distance as well, um, 101,000 plays according to my Spotify uh, list um, and and the next one comes in at sixty two, which is voice. Would you believe it's voice from the past? Right, um, mm. and then other half after that, um, and then yes, um, most toys is is the least, and then after that, last century for man. Hmm, that's so, funny because when we when we were writing and recording the last century for man, we all thought that was the best track on the album. The ba- you know, that was the one mm. that the band was most excited about, uh, which just goes to show how, I don't know, how how how, how wrong you can be. <laughs> but it, it is, you know, it's, it's funny how when you're in the grip of, of, of the process, you can sometimes, you, you know, have massive enthusiasm for something which couple of years after the event you you know you probably don't have uh, and vice versa you know you can you can gain a song can gain mythical status after the event that it didn't really have when you were putting it together mm. so who knows who knows, who knows? I, I only that. know one thing I was listening to a plastic ono band track which one was it ah <sighs> It might have been Mother. Mother, you had me, but I never had you. It might even have been Instant Karma. Uh, I I, I was listening to that once. And by pure chance, just because it was on my playlist, um, most toys came in straight after it. And it really stood up against, you know, it, it stood up and felt like it kind of belonged in amongst that. Um, so I think Most Toys is a song that would sit very happily alongside a lot of John Lennon's work, and yet mm. and yet nobody seems to want it from us. No. No, I could, I could certainly hear it. I could definitely hear Instant Karma into Most Toys. Yeah, into maybe a Susie and the Banshees song after that, yeah. you know. Uh, but I, I, I think so many people want something else from Marillion. They want mm. they want you know, they want something proggier or maybe they want something with you know, massive emotional depth. Um so something like most toys, which is basically just it's a much punkier thing. Um 
you know, and it's still got a hefty message in it, mm. but it's sort of hefty with the with the tongue in cheek as well. It's not it's not knitted brow at all, and and maybe maybe that's not what people want from us. But then, if you listen to the first part of um, Reprogram the Gene, that's mm. a fairly punky up tempo start. Okay, it it goes off from there into other stuff, but there's there's parallels between that and I can hear a parallel between that and most toys. Yeah, yeah. So can I, and it, it's it's just, it it's a side of my influences which I find really exciting, hmm. um, and yet like indie punk, isn't it? If there's such yeah, a thing as indie punk. Well, it's kind of where I came from. If yeah. you listen back to the early European stuff, um, that's kind of, we were, we were sort of indie post-punk. Um, and, and, you know, if you listen to the second Europeans album, you'll start to hear shades of, of perhaps, a, you know, a much more, a deeper, more knitted brow more angst-ridden side of my writing, you know, that's the, the, the still around now. But but I, I mean, I haven't really changed it. Maybe I have changed, I don't know. But that all I'm trying to say is that that post-punk thing is probably something I brought to Marillion, whether they wanted it or not. <laughs> <laughs> You're having it. <laughs> um... But you know that that's probably not fair either because if if you listen to uh, the the band's earlier albums with Fish, they, they were punky too. You know mm. there was a lot of anger and the, mm. uh, you know there was a, there were a lot of sharp edges in it. Um, so we'll, t- we'll take the keyboard line out of Punch and Judy, and that's that's a that's a. Bit of a punk tune, yeah. So those 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 things were still in, you know, they were still in there because I mean all of these things were forged out of the uh, the crucible of punk to some extent. Anyway, punk had been and gone and had left a mark. I think it was, I think think punk was overstated in the history of contemporary music. I think it has been overstated a lot. You know, it's some kind of romantic notion of journalists that punk was desperately required and it was some kind of saviour of music, which it wasn't. But it did have... It had something to say. Uh, you know, mm. it, did, it, it, it did introduce colours and attitudes into music, which might... which needed introducing, perhaps. I'm all for that, but I just think its importance has been overstated by the likes of, you know, people who like to feel that they're trendy. Well, on the subject of people who like to think they're a trendy, probably a good place for us to stop Mm. being the antithesis to that. Before I go naming them, we'd better stop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in which case, then let's keep going. No. (laughs) It's a long list. (laughs) We'll, we'll call it a day there for 104. And the one thing we haven't talked about is Crooncast. So what's coming next is going to be a total surprise. <laughs> yeah, to all of us. To all of us. <laughs> just you and Roland to work on that one. Just me and Roland. Oh, yeah. Come on, Eileen. <laughs> I was thinking of your new keyboard. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but now you've said it. I'll pass me that violin. <laughs> now you've said it. I'm not doing a come on, Eileen Crooncast. You can fuck off. You sold yourself to the sport of kings.
Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.